crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Before we begin, a warning. This case involves violence against children. First, Shirley McLeod heard soft moans and cries, then a pounding on the door. Cautiously, she peered outside and saw a young woman, hysterical and shaking, on her doorstep. He's got my children, the woman wailed. Please help me, please help me. Shirley ordered her son to call 911 right away, and then she flung open the door, took the woman inside, and asked what had happened. Susan Smith was trembling, sobbing. Her mess of frizzy hair was held up by a white bow, making her look even younger than the 23 years old she was. Through wails, Susan told her story. She'd been carjacked, she said, while driving with her two young sons. She was stopped at a traffic light behind the Monarch Mill textile plant, two miles from quiet Main Street, where a black man broke into her car with a gun in hand. Driver, I'll kill you, Susan would later report the man as saying. Panicked, Smith said she did as she was told. Susan said the man ordered her to drive east on Highway 49, away from downtown Union, a small town in South Carolina. The gun pressed against her ribs, the boys crying in the back seat. Susan said she drove for about 10 minutes before the man ordered her out of the car. But my children, Susan pleaded. Three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alex were both strapped into their car seats in the back. Let me get my boys, Susan begged. No, the man said, I don't have time for that. As the car sped away, Susan said she still screamed for her sons while the carjacker yelled back that he wouldn't hurt them. Shirley McLeod's son relayed all of this to the 911 operator. Did he have any weapons, gun, anything? He's got a gun. He's got a gun. Yes, ma'am. When the news spread, all of Union was shocked. A carjacking in town was unheard of. A kidnapping was unthinkable. These types of crimes just didn't happen in the town of nearly 10,000 residents. First, all of Union mobilized with prayer rallies and search parties. Then the story spread to the rest of South Carolina. Within 24 hours, the entire nation was gripped by the tale. President Clinton said today he's been following the Smith case. He called it heartbreaking and said he wanted to send a word of encouragement to the residents of Union. But after nine days of tireless searching, the horrible truth came out. The whole time Susan Smith had been hysterically blaming an armed black man for stealing her children in the fall of 1994, she knew exactly where they were. Just looking at it so you can believe it. It's just, you can't understand it. How a mother could do that to her children. It, of course, wasn't the first time the nation learned a mother killed her children, sadly. But Susan Smith's bald face lying and racist scapegoating jolted the country like few other crimes of the era. 
When I started this podcast, I knew I would cover this case, which is why Susan Smith's mugshot appeared in the video trailer. But do you remember that scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure where he's saving all the animals from a burning pet store and keeps putting off the snakes? That's how I felt about this one. I hate thinking about this case, much less talking about it. But it's an important one, because for a lot of people around my age, this case was pivotal in all the worst ways. I want to say to my babies (laughs) that your mama loves you so much. And your daddy, this whole families love you so much. For most of America, this is how we first met Susan Smith. She stood before microphones in a white shirt and white jacket, a big white scrunchie pulling her brown hair into a loose ponytail. Next to her was her estranged husband, David Smith. We love our children very much, and we want them returned to us safe and sound. Before their children disappeared, these two were nobodies outside of Union. For Susan, life began on September 26, 1971. She was born in Union as Susan Lee Vaughn to parents Harry and Linda Vaughn. Her mom had a son already from a previous relationship, and Harry and Linda had another boy after Susan, making her the only girl in the family. And she was a girly girl, wearing pretty dresses to Foster Park Elementary School. That's apparently where her love of hair bows developed. Teachers later remembered Susan as bright and eager to learn, but things at home weren't rosy. In 1977, Linda asked for a divorce. Harry was devastated that his marriage of 17 years was ending. He turned to drink, becoming a regular at happy hours. In December of that year, the Vaughn's divorce became final. Five weeks after that, on January 15, 1978, Harry shot himself in the stomach. Some believed afterward that he'd only meant to injure himself, a cry-for-help theory that's bolstered by the fact that he called 911 after he pulled the trigger. But whatever his intentions, the gunshot was fatal. He was 34 years old. Susan was only six. Linda remarried soon after, this time to a well-known man in Union named Beverly Russell, called Bev by those who knew him. Russell was wealthy, having owned a popular appliance store in Union. He was also a member of the advisory board of the Christian Coalition, and he was active in local politics, serving as a state Republican executive committee man. When Susan was about 15, she confided in a school counselor that her stepfather had molested her. As required, the counselor reported the abuse to authorities, but when investigators came by the house... Both Linda and Susan apparently said they didn't want charges filed. The case went nowhere. Bev later acknowledged that the allegation was true. He said he was ashamed and sought professional help. Despite all this, Susan thrived as a student from a documentary. In high school, she had been a member of the National Honor Society and was voted friendliest girl by her classmates. At the start of her senior year, Susan began seeing an older married man, a relationship that predictably did not end well. Susan got pregnant by the man, who insisted on an abortion, and then ended the fling. This launched Susan into a deep depression, prompting her to overdose on aspirin and anison. The suicide attempt landed her in the hospital for about a week, during which time doctors, and eventually Susan's family, 
learned that this had actually been her second attempt at ending her life, the first time having been when she was only 13. Susan took some time away from her job at a local supermarket, Winn-Dixie, to focus on her health, both physical and mental. When she got back, she caught the eye of coworker David Smith. Nearly a full year older than Susan, David had been born in Michigan before moving as a toddler with his family to a city called Putnam, about five miles northwest of Union. He started working at Winn-Dixie at age 16, beginning around 1986. Susan had started at Winn-Dixie a couple of years after that, beginning as a cashier part-time after school. She had a great work ethic and a flair for keeping things organized, so within six months, she was promoted to head cashier. David, too, was a hard worker, eventually climbing the ladder to become assistant manager. He was especially skilled at handling customers. It wasn't long after Susan's hospitalization that the two started dating. The next year, in 1991, they were married. Baby Michael came soon after, followed a year and a half later by Alex. Susan got a new job at Conso Products Co., a plant producing decorative trimmings like the fringe or cording you might see on a couch or curtains. Susan's job was secretarial, so as part of the gig, she handled all of the upbeat stuff, like arranging company parties and ordering cakes to celebrate workers' birthdays. David and Susan bought a 1,200-square-foot ranch house on Tony Road and seemed like great parents. However, no one would have argued that they were great spouses. Each accused the other of infidelity, and David, at least, has admitted to affairs— one with a co-worker at Winn-Dixie, which led to some pretty public confrontations on Susan's part, sometimes with the kids in tow. David and Susan fought regularly. He twice had moved out during periods of separation, and at the time Susan reported her kids missing, they were moving forward with divorce proceedings. During that separation, Susan had begun a relationship with one of her boss's three sons, Conso Products, the town's largest plant, was owned by J. Carey Finley, making him one of Union's most powerful men. He had three sons, including Tom Finley. Tom was only a few years older than Susan, but he wore his age differently than she did. His hair was thinning, he looked more like a balding 40-something than her contemporary, but he was known throughout town as a charming, eligible bachelor that he lived in his dad's mansion probably didn't hurt. Tom was known for throwing hot tub parties. And while Susan and David weren't poor, they made about $40,000 combined in 1994, which is higher than the median income is today in Union, it still had to have been fairly jaw-dropping for them to see how Tom Finley lived. As a documentary put it, Tom... was Susan Smith's ticket to the good life. And that seems to be how she saw things anyway. Tom apparently saw things differently. A few months into their relationship, he wrote her a letter telling her he valued their friendship, but that their differences were just too vast. He wrote, You will, without a doubt, make some lucky man a great wife, but unfortunately, it won't be me. It's the fourth paragraph of the letter that eventually caught prosecutors' attention. It began... Quote, Susan, I could really fall for you, 
but like I've told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children. I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. End quote. Prosecutors would argue that Susan took this letter to mean that if she didn't have kids, she could have Tom. In fairness, Tom made it pretty clear that wasn't the case. I mean, he literally wrote, but our differences go far beyond the children issue. But given what Susan did to the children the week after she received this letter, prosecutors figured they'd found a mother's motive for murder. After Susan turned up on the McLeod doorstep, the community of Union banded together. Law enforcement authorities searched for clues. This close-knit community held prayer rallies. Many residents would dedicate countless hours to a nine-day search for Michael and Alex Smith. Shirley McLeod, the woman who had answered the door for a frantic Susan, helped with the search. She was tormented by the boy's disappearance and haunted by the vision of this distraught, hyperventilating woman that she'd consoled in her living room. McLeod described Susan as violently shaking as she recounted the carjacking, nearly convulsing as McLeod's son talked to a 911 dispatcher. Then he's got the key in? Yes, ma'am, and her car. I don't, she's really hysterical, and I just decided I need to call law and get him down here. After police were dispatched, Susan kept shaking so much that she couldn't dial the phone numbers for her mother or her estranged husband. David said... When I got there, she was she was hysterical. I had to literally pick her up off the floor and take her into the other room and sit, sit down with her on the couch. Susan and David appeared together to publicly appeal to the kidnapper. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't do anything but think about them. And I just want to hug them so bad and tell them I love them. Susan went so far as to say that she was sure the boys were okay. And you guys have got to be strong because you are, we, 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 I just know, I just feel in my heart that you're okay. But you got to take care of each other. And your mom and dad are going to be right here waiting on you when you get home. Susan also marveled at the attention the case was garnering. And this stood out to one newspaper photographer who later told a story about stopping by the Smith home after the abduction was reported so that he could take portraits of Susan and David, plus get pictures of the kids to disseminate. While David reluctantly agreed to the photos, you know, anything to spread word about his missing kids in hopes of getting them back, Susan asked the photographer if she should keep her glasses on or take them off. It struck the photographer as an odd thing to worry about when one's children had been stolen by a man with a gun. I mean, they've got it, people everywhere looking for them. I mean, you know, you can hear the helicopters are there, and but they, they haven't seen anything. And it's just, it's crazy. I, I just, and it's been since 9 o'clock last night, you know. And I, and I really thought that when it got daylight, they would find them just in a heartbeat. It's worth noting that the first time Susan appealed to the public, she was wearing a sweatshirt from Auburn University. It was Tom Finley's shirt, one that she had tried to return to him earlier that very day, but which he refused because she was so distraught at the time that he thought it might be a goodbye gift to him preceding a suicide attempt. When a co-worker called him the night of the supposed kidnapping and asked if he'd heard about Susan, 
Finley thought, oh my God, she's killed herself. Now, Susan's appearances on TV did something interesting. At first, it led some in law enforcement to believe Susan was lying. The emotion in her voice sounds staged, and her word choices were odd. This is former reporter Heather Hoops Matthews, who covered the case. I would do live shots for stations around the country, and they were asking the question, well, hey, do they think the mom did it? It was a question that was on a lot of people's minds. Susan said things like, I loved them, I really did. Well, that's past tense. I mean, are they dead? Do you know something we don't? Local investigators were just as dubious about her carjacking claim. David Smith looked like a guy who someone had kidnapped his kid. Susan Smith looked like someone who was excited for the media attention. It's true, too. It's hard to explain, but... She looks like a high schooler acting in a school play, or like a woman whose face is frozen from too much Botox, although this was almost a decade before the FDA cleared that stuff for wrinkles. Now, in fairness, you can't determine much based on how people respond to trauma. Some people wail, some people go into shock, some people make jokes as a survival mechanism. Guess which one I do. But still, something about Susan's affect seemed off. The benefit of hindsight surely helps, but either way, her television interviews sparked debate. Now, for the record, while police thought Susan was lying about what happened, they didn't necessarily jump to the same dark conclusion that reporters did. Susan's insistence that the kids were okay, plus the fact that everyone they interviewed praised her as a caring, loving mother to Michael and Alex, made police think that if she were involved, she must be pulling something in hopes of either getting back at David for cheating on her or to screw with her custody arrangement. Maybe she had given the kids to a relative or friend and they'd suddenly show up in some deserted lot, safe and sound. Of course, each day that passed without resolution undermined that hope. Three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alex Smith have been missing eight days. Nine days. Again, the search is on. This is the first carjacking. Susan and David Smith came out of seclusion. There's speculation this could be a Law enforcement cannot rule out anything. The lead had fallen through. There are so many people working on this case now. in the statements of Susan Smith. Susan Smith. Susan Von Smith. I found that compilation in a mini-documentary about the case. And people who doubted Susan's story weren't just going by her TV performances. It was her actual story that made them doubt. The tale she told just didn't add up. For starters, she said that she'd been stopped at a red light when... Out of nowhere, this black guy came up and we just opened the door and jumped in the car. She also said that no one else was around, no other cars to witness the attack. Trouble was, the light at that particular intersection would only turn red if another car triggered it to. In other words... Had no one else been around, Susan wouldn't have had any reason to stop her car because that light would have been green. Additionally, when Susan was asked to describe her carjacker, the image that came from it was really generic. I mean, in fact, it looked more like a caricature of a black man than a real person. Also, with all the media attention across the country, police were flummoxed that they couldn't find her car. As members of the black community and union pointed out, The idea that a black man driving a car with two crying white children strapped in the back probably would have drawn someone's attention. 
especially in Union, South Carolina, where a lake was named for a founding Klansman's son. Though detectives didn't tell Susan this, their actions made clear that... They knew from the beginning she was lying. That's journalist Randy Covington. Despite their doubts, police questioned Black men in and around Union. After the fact, the men who were stopped said officials were respectful, just doing their jobs. But it wasn't just the police eyeing area Black men. The whole city, the state, the entire country was on the lookout for anyone bearing a resemblance to this utterly generic sketch. There were people riding around here with rifles in the back of the trucks, shotguns in the back of the trucks, and I'm sure there were numerous people riding around with the pistols in the car. Journalists were sensitive to this, especially because they were among the early doubters. Here's Covington again, followed by Hoops. There were reports of African-American males being detained all over the country because of a general resemblance to this composite sketch. A dialogue started in the newsroom. This composite is so generic, do we continue to use it? And the newsroom decided to stop using that. Among investigators, questions were rampant. And the whole crime just didn't make sense. Why would anyone steal a car with two kids in it if kidnapping the kids wasn't the intent? Wouldn't they have at least released the children somewhere nearby? And where the hell was the car? If it wasn't a motive to steal the car, in most carjackings, if it's a robbery, the car is abandoned somewhere close by. So we couldn't figure the motive. Despite investigators' doubts, they wanted Susan to keep talking. So publicly, they swatted down reporters' skeptical questions. They took this approach because the one time they tried to come at Susan with a bad cop routine, it didn't go well. An investigator confronts Susan, demanding to know why she killed her children. She storms out of the room. This confrontation not only upset Susan and threatened to upend the investigation, but it upset the boy's father, too. David believed Susan, period and thought police were wasting time by questioning her about her story. I believed Susan, as I've stated before, 100% completely. Never, never, beyond that I, that I didn't believe her beyond a shadow of a doubt, never. It wasn't until police fibbed that Susan finally came clean. Investigators told her that they'd recovered surveillance video from the carjacking intersection, It didn't show what they were expecting to see, they said. They gave Susan one last chance to tell the truth. She finally did. Good evening. There's been a dramatic turn in the case of two South Carolina children reported kidnapped nine days ago. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael, three, and Alexander, 14 months. It is legal, by the way, for police to lie during interrogations. They have to be careful not to elicit false confessions by lying in a way that would panic an innocent person so much that they would make up a story thinking that that was the only way they could save themselves. But this case shows why bluffing sometimes works. The story Susan told was more than heartbreaking. It was enraging. She said she was depressed in the darkest spot of her life, and she wanted to die. She didn't want to leave her children without a mother, though, so she decided to take them with her. She drove to John D. Long Lake, 
then drove down a boat ramp with the intention of driving into the water. But she couldn't do it. She didn't want to die that horrible death. And drowning, for the record, is terrible, especially drowning in a car that doesn't sink straight away. You can see death coming. That was too terrifying for Susan Smith, but somehow she decided it was okay for her two helpless children. They were strapped in the back seat of that car, apparently asleep, at least at first. Susan got out of the car, put the car in neutral, released the emergency brake, and watched as it rolled into the water. Then she ran away screaming until she found the McLeod's front door. The vehicle, a 1990 Mazda, driven by Smith, was located late Thursday afternoon in Lake John D. Long near Union. Two bodies were found in the vehicle's back seat. Identities are pending an autopsy. Susan's family was devastated for the loss of their two beautiful boys, of course, but not just that. It was, it was a, a sickening feeling that I've never felt experienced in my life before. I felt empty. I felt hollow. I felt betrayed. The community felt betrayed, too. I mean, when outsiders had questioned Susan's sincerity, union residents often had her back. Shirley McLeod had given an interview to the local newspaper defending Susan that ran the day Susan confessed. When people had doubted Susan's story, Shirley had shot back things like, you didn't see her that night. You didn't feel her body quaking. When Shirley learned the truth, she had trouble accepting it, even when she heard Susan had confessed because she didn't put it past investigators to lie about it. Once Shirley did accept that she had been duped, Her faith in people was forever shaken. The Black community was less shocked by the revelation, but no less upset. They're always accusing Black people of doing things that they do themselves. Anytime you say Black man and white woman, it's all over. You know, I mean, that's my my opinion. Anytime you say a Black man, that's it. And that's why a lot of us are single now. All of our men are locked up. Some of them are innocent. She wouldn't have testified that she done it. They still would be looking for this suspect. And she could, you know, have got away with it. Because this happened in America at any point in American history means that racial tensions were high. That's why the case caught the attention of President Bill Clinton. Two years earlier, we had seen the L.A. race riots prompted by policemen being acquitted in the videotaped beating of Rodney King. Just months before the Smith case, there had been the horrific murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman and the subsequent arrest of football legend O.J. Simpson, who was about to face trial in the stabbings. If you weren't around for that trial, know that it highlighted racial divisions in America. That Susan Smith had blamed a Black man for a crime she herself committed? Well, some worried that was enough to ignite another powder keg. But it didn't. Clinton praised the people of Union. The American people looked on them with enormous admiration, the way they pulled together across racial and other lines, the way they tried to find those children. I just don't want them to believe that somehow what the mother did in any way diminishes the quality, the character the courage of what they did. Really, the race issue in this case is probably the biggest reason it's a crime of the century when other instances of parents killing their children don't quite rise to the level. 
To underscore that, it's worth noting that at the same time the world was captivated by the Smith case, there was another case of parents killing a child in Florida. In that case, Pauline Zell also told police and media that her seven-year-old daughter, Christina Holt, had been kidnapped, and she too used reporters to deliver a message to the child she knew damn well was already dead. Not to be scared, Mama's gonna find her soon, but I love her. The truth came out within days. But the stepfather, Walter Zile, has confessed to beating Christina to death and burying her. To protect him, Pauline Zile said her daughter disappeared in this shopping mall. But as equally tragic and senseless as that case was, it didn't have the same national impact. In part, that's likely because Zile didn't weaponize racism. I imagine it's also because Christina had been mistreated previously, meaning there had been warning signs that could have been heeded. In Susan Smith's case, no one saw it coming. The trial against Susan Smith and the deaths of her two young sons wasn't so much about deciding if she was guilty as it was determining whether she should die. Susan's confession ensured she'd be convicted. Really, the state was going to get a murder conviction just for showing up. This is defense attorney David Brock. She had confessed to capital murder. We knew that the um, confession was not going to be thrown out. Generally, the heftiest murder charge in the state either first degree or capital, depending on whether it's a death penalty state, hinges on premeditation. But that premeditation doesn't have to mean the killer drew up blueprints and methodically planned out the killing. It could simply mean that the killer had time to stop and think about what they were doing. Time to change course. That might only be a few minutes, maybe even a few seconds. That part is left to a jury to decide. In Susan's confession, she admitted that she had time to think about what she was doing because she described going down the boat ramp, stopping, going down again, and stopping again. She made a conscious decision to stop, to get out, and to still make the car go on in the lake with two kids in the back. You know what I mean? It wasn't these random, you know, I have to somehow save myself. In other words, she had had long enough to think twice about killing herself, So there was no way she could argue that she didn't have time to stop herself from killing her children. A capital murder conviction was a given. What wasn't as clear-cut was whether she deserved to die. This is Brock talking to reporters. The death penalty is, for her, uh, beside the point. She says over and over again that she wishes she could just die so that she wouldn't have to hurt anymore. But it wasn't beside the point. It became the entire point. It's the only question that jurors really had to weigh. Brock fought hard to save his client's life, and the prosecution's approach gave him more opening to do so. The state made the decision to try to prove motive at the guilt phase. We expected them to do it. We thought it was a mistake, but we thought it was a mistake they were going to make, and they did. Prosecutors argued that Susan's motive was Tom Finley. Her lover had said, hey, I could really fall for you if it weren't for your kids. And according to the state, Susan killed her children to make that happen. But by opening the door to that line of testimony, prosecutors gave Brock a doorway to present his own theory on motive. And that theory was that Susan's childhood, 
her father's suicide, the sexual assault by her stepfather, had damaged her so badly mentally that she wasn't in her right mind when she killed her children. Susan had been suicidal in high school to the point that she was briefly hospitalized in a psychiatric unit. This is clinical psychologist George Riekers, who wrote a book about Susan's case. Her father had committed suicide, and we know that individuals whose parents commit suicide, they're higher risk for suicide. These facts were brought out in the trial. Also, she had depression. Jurors sided with the defense. Susan was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole beginning in 2024. In the 27 years since her conviction, she has not been a model prisoner. She's been caught having sexual affairs with two prison guards, including Alfred Rowe, who lost his job as a prison captain. He said the tryst began with... Her approaching me at about 3 o'clock one morning, telling me that she thought I was the nicest officer there and that she was lonely and things just escalated. She's a manipulator and good at it. The deaths of Michael and Alex Smith shattered the town of Union, but that's not where it stopped. Every generation has to come to grips at some point or another with the realization that the world isn't as safe as our parents led us to believe. But even though we know that, a lot of us are naive to the danger that some parents can be to their own children. The thought of Susan Smith buckling her children into their car seats, how trusting they must have been, completely without fear because that was their mother, the person they had no choice but to surrender to day in and day out. Did she tell them it'd be okay? Did she hear any cries when the water began to rise? Did she contemplate for even a second running back to save her little boys? That's the first time in my career I'd ever broken down after, after testimony. The diver who recovered the car found it hood down beneath 18 feet of water. Experts estimated that to drift the 100 feet from the boat ramp as it did, it likely took six minutes for the car to fully sink. The diver testified that when he swam up to the overturned car, he still held on to hope that the confession had been false, that the boys weren't there. And then he saw a little hand against one of the windows. He cried as he testified. He said he would never be the same. About two years ago, Susan wrote a letter to a newspaper defending herself. She said it had been tough over the previous quarter century to hear people accuse her of killing her boys to be with some man. That wasn't true, she insisted. She wrote, quote, I am not the monster society thinks I am. I am far from it. I was a good mom and I loved those boys, end quote. Tommy Pope, who had served as lead prosecutor in Smith's case, was unmoved by her words. She has always kind of take, taken a self-centered focus over the years. If you look at the, the letter, it's, it's still more about her not about Michael and Alex, not about the, the the regrets of the crime. I, for one, agree that Susan Smith isn't a monster. That's just too reductive. She's worse than a monster. And there were no red flags in hindsight that someone could have heeded. No foreshadowing that her boys were in any danger. 
This case taught us that even when someone treats us lovingly and patiently, even when they're our mother, our safety with them still isn't guaranteed. And that's what makes this case so terrifying. To research this case, I read the book Sins of the Mother, watched some documentaries, and probably self-medicated a tad too much while doing so. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 